Hello, everyone. Welcome to Struggle Session. I'm Leslie III. I'm Shannon Strucci. And today, we're back on the case. We're hunting sickos again, folks. The most depraved minds in America now need to hide from the mind hunters. And I have with me one of the most elite mind hunters in the game, Will Miniker. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. You know, people don't know that, you know, if I wasn't a podcaster, I would be an FBI mind hunter because it's it's the perfect job for me because um, it's the one job in law enforcement where you don't actually have to um, apprehend um, killers. You can just sort of just sort of teach your superiors at the FBI about human sexuality. And <laughs> that's really all you need to do to be a mind hunter. You can just let the FBI know that like uh, blowjobs exist. <laughs> So we're talking about two movies today in the Mindhunter genre, uh, 1995's uh, David Fincher's masterpiece, I think I could say, Seven, as well as a recent flick uh, that just came out uh, in theaters and on HBO Max, uh, which is a pretty good subversion of the genre, at least it's trying to be a subversion, maybe an escalation of the genre. And that's uh, the little thing starring Denzel Washington, uh, Jared Leto and Rami Malek. And I just want to start off uh, talking about, you know, the prototype, of course, uh, seven. This is a movie that spawned several like spinoffs and kind of a mini sensation. It, it, it was a follow up to Silence of the Lambs, but after seven got the ball rolling, then you get like tons and ser- mind hunting movies, kiss the girls, bone collector, you know, copycat. They may, they may have been first, but you know, you get this whole genre spawning. Then it moved to TV with things like even the X files is kind of does a little bit of this, but also shows like a profiler medium uh, up to criminal minds. And, but seven, I think uh, safe to say probably one of, if not the best of all of these. People forget that Mulder was in the FBI behavioral sciences division before he was transferring to the X-Files. He was, he was known as the Bureau's top mind hunter before he started <laughs> uh, hunting aliens. It, it came out in when I was 13, and I, I remember the first time I watched it, I re-rented it from the video store, but it was like a shady backwoods video store. So the copy we had was like a copy of the original of of it so like the colors were all washed out (laughs) it wasn't even like the a good they even like get the good tape with like ep and put it on like ep mode or whatever like the best mode they it was very shitty very faded out and i still absolutely positively love this movie even though i mostly remember it as black and white more or (laughs) less you didn't even notice that it was raining the entire movie yeah like like the actually watching it for the first time in like super high quality I that the 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 what they call it the sex toy knife thing yeah. I didn't I couldn't see like <laughs> oh, wow. what that was on my copy of 7 so like I'm seeing that for the first time I was like oh okay this is a really fuck this is even more fucked up than I thought <laughs> Well that makes sense now it didn't really make yeah. sense before Yeah I love 7 uh it's got one of my favorite chase scenes out of like any film I've ever seen rewatching it like I had admired the production design before, but it feels like a haunted house or something like a haunted house attraction. They're just like going through this completely fabricated, disgusting world without without it feeling unrealistic. But it's like terrifying the entire time. Like everything is so gross and nasty and just weighs you down. I just I remember like just what a game changer seven was. Like like you said, Leslie, like when it first came out, like it really blew everyone's mind and like i remember more than anything just the opening credit sequence with the fucking nine inch nails oh, yeah. song just like really like right off the bat just creating this like like to- like people i don't know it was like it was like a totally new kind of like look or style for a movie it's just this like really it's like gothic but also like very like modern and realistic like sense of um yeah serial killing depravity because i remember they used to do like news stories on like the title sequence and how fincher did it because people were so fucking blown away by this movie it was a bit of like a cultural sensation which you 
don't get for like R-rated movies about people like gutting each other and decapitating each other uh, these days. I feel except for maybe the girl with the dragon tattoo, which was maybe the maybe the the swan song of this as a this genre as like a blockbuster film. I mean, obviously we've uh, I've discussed um, Hannibal Lecter with you guys before and the whole Thomas Harris universe, and like that was probably the 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 first movie to like sort of. I don't know. I guess I would say uh, semi-glamorized being a serial killer yes. or, or to make it seem that like, um, oh, in order to be a serial killer, you actually have to be like a genius too, like an maybe, artist. Hey, maybe <laughs> these guys have something to say. And um, and, and, and Seven um, really takes it there as well with, uh, you know, Kevin Spacey and his sort of uh, his ideological art project in um, what he's seeking to do. But what I what I like about Seven as a Mindhunter movie and something I realized, you know, when I rewatched it recently is that uh, Brad Pitt especially is like not a good cop or investigator at all, and like <laughs> and fucks it fucks up the investigation over and over again. And they really only, I mean, it's clear that they only catch Kevin Spacey because he wants them to. And this is what I like about the mind hunting genre as a whole, or even the Mind Hunters TV show, also by David Fincher, is. It's 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 a little bit hard to like say, you could you could sort of miss it if you're watching it too closely or like too literally, but I think the show does a pretty good job of showing that mind hunting as a forensic science is like almost completely horseshit. That like I mean it's just like they can create a, a profile to fit the people that they've already interviewed, but it does almost nothing to like actually prevent these <laughs> criminal sickos from continuing to murder people. Cause like the way in like, I think in, in season two or in the first season, the cold opens or they show you the BTK killer over and over again, sort of tying knots and like, you know, doing his home security job. Like they didn't catch that guy for like 30 fucking years. And they only caught him because he made some like unbelievably imbecilic error of like sending his home address to the local police by accident. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. Like I think he printed out like a Yahoo maps uh, from his computer and they were able to like track it because he sent it with a letter something like that so this is i, I kind of want to get into a little bit uh, of john douglas's book and what he talks about and how he actually talks about mind hunting because uh, like you said what a lot of people are saying like this is bullshit this is pseudoscience and what what is i don't actually agree with that about mind hunting because what mind hunting really is when you actually when what he actually says it it is is basically you tell the cops that when someone turns up dead you just don't find the nearest uh big black guy to blame it on right you actually look at who the victim is where they were killed and try to look at the behavior of the killer in order to basically eliminate suspects all he always says is is most useful for eliminating people so that you're not looking for a again uh a black uh a criminal who just got out of jail for you know robbing something uh, for a robbery for like a series of home invasions in the suburbs where nobody notices like anybody walking around like that that's basically what it is and he actually he 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 likes the celebrity and the fame and the fact that like people have adapted his life story time and time again like even um the Hannibal series when Will gets encephalitis that actually happened to John Douglas while he was working the Green River Killer uh, case and and so and he always talks about yeah I almost you know worked myself to death on the job no you you were ill like you weren't <laughs> like like you didn't almost die because you were mind hunting so hard you almost died because you were sick and he's an arrogant asshole about everything but mind hunting. When it comes to mind hunting, he basically says, he says, we don't catch criminals. I don't go out and arrest people. He sits in the office at Quantico while his buddies teach classes and he looks at files all day. That's what he does. He's not like some bad, he's not like some badass going around kicking down doors like criminal minds or anything. No private jets. And he's actually very modest about what he can show. He said, look, we only know this stuff not because we're psychics or we're smart. It's just because we were the first cops to actually talk to criminals about why they do stuff instead of just assuming that it was because they masturbated too much. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that was a big part of the Mindhunter show that I alluded to in the beginning. It's yeah. just like them them telling their bosses at the FBI, who's like, you know, the, uh, <laughs> you know, the bureau chief is some like, you know, like totally square Mormon guy. And they have to tell them in like the driest possible terms about what a what a sexual fetish or paraphilia is. And they're like, my God, 
my God, what if we discovered? (laughs) (laughs) And what I, I like about Seven, though, is that it does show that most of the people doing the mind hunting are not elite FBI agents. Those are the teachers. The one they've been training like regular dipshit cops like the Brad Pitt character in this to do to go out and try to do this in the local municipalities. And as anyone who's followed true crime knows, it normally uh, doesn't work out when like these fucking yokels try to become mind (laughs) hunters and get into the mind of a killer, specifically the Yorkshire Ripper case, which is a famous uh, case in the UK because the local PD got himself into mind hunting like people will send him fake you know confessions and like one guy sp- specifically sent him fake letters confessing to the uh to killing it and made fake doing the killing and fake made fake phone calls so they eliminated any suspects that didn't match the handwriting on the letters or didn't have like the specific accent but it was completely fake they ended up interviewing the real killer nine times <laughs> nine times over the course of the investigation and eliminated him multiple times including based on these this fake uh tete-a-tete that the uh, police were having with the killer you know the, he literally sent letters calling himself jack the ripper and the cops were like well my my god this must be uh the guy and they spent millions chasing these false leads while the murders were continuing uh, to happen. So that's just how mind hunting kind of works out there in the field. I mean, I like that, 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 that dynamic is sort of portrayed in, in seven because, um, one of my favorite parts of, 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 of seven is all the time Morgan Friedman spends with his friends in this like gorgeous public library. And he's just <laughs> yes. like hanging out, Xeroxing books and stuff. And then he tries to get Brad Pitt to like, be like, we're going to catch this killer by you reading Dante. And and Brad Pitt is just like basically like books are for gays or something like that. <laughs> the Marquis de Sade or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's like, What's this? Talking about it. Yeah, he's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I loved, you know, watching, you know, a little bit of it back. The specifically the relationship between uh, Somerset and Mills, because they are both two extremely dumb guys having extremely realistic conversations when dumb guys think they're smart like <laughs> like that's when Mar- morgan gets frustrated because he gives you know uh brad pitt his like little speech about life and brad pitt's just like nah fuck that and then mills just is like well actually kind of fuck you you're naive <laughs> like that is every like like he has no other like defense against you know he can't even talk brad pitt pit into like his bullshit like he's complete but they're both completely full of shit have no real understanding of the world or humanity and i do kind of like that watching that back now i really like the scene where they're at kevin spacey's house after the chase and Morgan Freeman's like, don't bust down the door. It'll screw up the whole case. And immediately Brad Pitt just busts down the door. It's like, yeah. At least they drew attention yeah. to it. Because usually in movies, they just do it and they don't get in trouble. It's like, yeah, this is what happens. Fucking idiot. Yeah, like, like they keep fucking up the case. Like there's no way they would like be able to put him even on trial at the end of this. Which like, I guess leads to why they ended it um, the way it did. But I, I don't want to gloss over just how fucked up and brutal all the killings are which i think is kind of the stand out i mean thing. That, that's it's, what blew me that's what blew away like everyone when they first saw that movie is that like the shit in it like with the with gluttony or uh lust certainly like people oh. were not prepared for like just how yeah like medievally baroque like all of these like like, like specifically tailored um to, like you know acts of cruelty and murder were yeah i think for me the creepiest one probably the um which, uh, which one? Sloth. Yeah. Sloth. So oh my god. The scene where like the SWAT team guy is just like his face is like right <laughs> over the thing, and the guy just starts like ca- like choking oh and my coughing, god. and you realize he's alive. He's alive. He's alive. The guy's <laughs> alive. Oh my yeah. god. That's the one. Really? That I think the first time I watched it, that is so scary because you really don't expect that uh, to be happening, and then it just yeah. 
And yeah, like like to the idea about like you know um, Kevin Spacey's character, which you know a- adds a, a metal layer to this movie as well. Yes. Watching it in <laughs> retrospect, in terms of like his his, his supervillain level of genius, and uh, I, you know just thinking about his Christmas YouTube videos, the fact like, that he is a serial killer, yeah, in like real that life. he's like you know like like sending messages to the cops and shit with his Queen Elizabeth current anniversary coronation mug. It's just like. Fucking straight out of that movie. But yeah, I remember like my favorite part of that movie, like that I was obsessed with was like the towards the end, like that long scene. It's like, you know, it's it's it's, it's the very end of the movie where like the rain stops for some reason. Like these these murders take place in Los Angeles in like the one week in the last decade in which it rained every single day. <laughs> So like it's 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 like the the pal- the color palette of the film is like totally different. It becomes this very like washed out like desert landscape rather than the very like gray, rainy sort of like film noir look that um the the, the film like the most of the movie looks like. And it's this whole conversation that they have with Kevin Spacey in the back of the car where they're taking him into the desert to like you know as part of his like confession or whatever. And he he sort of lays out his philo- the philosophy behind his killing. And, you know, like, yeah, like, as a teenager watching that, you're like, damn, like, yo, this guy's a genius. Like, yo, what, yeah, yo, he's on to something, though. Like, yo, what if we should kill fat people for being <laughs> lazy? <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that uh, this, you mentioned Los Angeles. So this movie was filmed in Los Angeles, but it's actually set in New York and is about. What? Yeah, what it's the fuck? I never realized that. I thought yeah, it was it's... an ambiguous city. Well, yeah, I thought, yeah, said. sort of, yeah, I, I, I sort of assumed it was either LA or some just sort of like fictional city, but New York? Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like, it's a fictional city, but it's supposed to be about the writer's time oh, in yeah, New yeah, York. Oh, yeah, it's miserable, awful time in New York. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess maybe it's, it's Tech Bardot County, is I think what they call it. So it's not, not a real place, but it's meant to be New York, even though it's obviously filmed in a. Los Angeles, and I like it because it is one of those final New York City is hell, is a hellscape kind of movies. Like after this, you know, now it's just about how bright. Yeah, you it's know, all Times sex Square in the city, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's romantic comedy, uh, New York, and I just what like what you, yeah, Will, were you living in New York City or around? Yeah, yeah, around this town, and like I just, what, yeah, I never, assumed, I just like never assumed it was New York City because I guess like I, I'm from there, and I was just like, oh. What the fuck? They're in the desert now. What's going on? This this is L.A. Obviously. What did y'all think? Just living in New York, where one moment on in the movies, like your place is literally hell, and then the next is like a romantic fantasy land. Uh, it was like I was I was too young to have experienced or really been aware of like the classic era of like you know Death Wish Taxi Driver era in yeah. New York, and I think by then like most people in New York didn't see New York City that way either. You know, like like the the idea of like yeah, like New York as this like yeah, just like urban hellscape of like nonstop crime, where like the minute you left your apartment, you would be mugged or worse yeah. on the street, had uh, already sort of gone away. Um, but like I, I yeah, like I I viewed it like it, I always assumed it was L.A. I mean, it's never really spoken, but I just assumed it was like the portrayal of the city in that movie was this kind of a. Uh, yeah, like it was sort of an impressionistic portrait of like this kind of like city of endless night. See, like where, there, where there's no light and it just represents like everything kind of dark and ugly about humanity. All right. So let's talk about the ending. Um, sadly, sadly, it was spoiled for me. Even oh, that no. early oh, wow. on. <laughs> even that early on, Dang. I knew the ending. I don't even remember how. I guess I was on a fucking AOL message board or something and uh, had the ending spoiled uh, for me. Or maybe a school uh, a school friend or something told me about it uh, before I had a chance to see it. But... Hey, I, uh, I, I have the ending to Usual Suspects spoiled for me. So, oh, no. You know, so we're talking spacey, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yes, yeah, spoilers, folks, spoilers, folks. If you're still in, into the podcast by now, I don't think we've spoiled anything yet, but you don't want to know this if you haven't watched the movie. And so the ending where, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's character, who I have to say basically was a ghost before, this is the most listless performance of any yeah. <laughs> actor I have ever seen. I remember even as a teen being like, what the fuck is like why is she in movie she looks ill she uh is murdered 
by Kevin Spacey's character, and he delivers her head in a box to uh, Brad Pitt's uh, character in this uh, convoluted um, sort of prisoner scene that I don't think would ever actually happen in real life, even though like the behavioral science unit did do kooky stuff like bring the case files to Ted Bundy. On certain cases, they act that trope actually is real, but I don't think they've ever done anything as as, uh, ridiculous as this. And then, of course, uh, Brad Pitt uh, ends up shooting uh, Kevin Spacey, completing his his master stroke of like he he they become the sins like you know because you know you're like it's seven you're going down the list and you're like oh boy. Just like checking off those boxes, I can't That's wait a good to see. What, I can't technique. wait to see what they're going to do with wrath and envy. <laughs> yes, and then at the end, it's like, oh, like you know, they 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 they, they stitch it all up. But like, yeah, it just goes back to this idea, like yeah, like beginning with Hannibal Lecter of like our pop cultural um, um, idea of like what serial killers are like. Is that like, oh, yeah, like they'd have to be geniuses to do all this or like, well, damn, he's read Dante. Like, no wonder he's <laughs> killing people. That's how smart he is. But, you know, I mean, I, I think the reality is that, like, you know, like uh, organized pathological murders or for sexually motivated purposes, the men who do them are, you know, not only like not high IQ individuals, they're just like very pathetic, banal individuals. And like, mm-hmm. they're like, like the, 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 these acts that they do, like the, glor- the way they're glorified in popular culture is kind of sick. Um, but like, you know, like I said, like every dumb guy on the Internet quotes Marcus Aurelius because Hannibal told them to do that. <laughs> it's just that one scene in Silence of the Lambs where he says, read Marcus Aurelius. And like, I, I feel like every dumb guy since then has been like, damn, check out, you you read Marcus Aurelius? That's what you have to do to be a smart, evil genius. <laughs> yeah, this, like, so reading My Hunter, he does say that serial killers on average have a higher IQ, but they're all low achieving. They don't do shit with it and they don't like even in like school middle school and high school they generally underperform because they just don't care and as far and they don't you don't need to be an evil genius to get away with you know being a serial killer because the way police catch you know criminals is yeah. basically they pin it on the husband the boyfriend the per it's mo- most murders are between people who know each other right so if you're if you go around killing random people the complete the police are at a complete and other fucking loss. They have no idea where to start. And that's where the mind games thing comes in. Oh, it's the evil. No, it's just because the cops never really did any like actual investigative work. They were, they're all like extremely lazy dipshits as, as we all know. And when they used to have like a 90% murder clearance rate, uh, as, as uh, John Douglas talks about in the book, that was when like every, like in order to murder someone, like, you had to like live within five miles of them or something like that you know like there's not there's not that much traveling on there's not that many people meeting and the serial killer just threw all of them into a loop and that's why they had to develop this behavior it's funny though like even in like the the early part of the 20th century like if if you murdered someone and then just like went to a different town to yes. live. Like there was basically <laughs> nothing that they could do to find out. Like you could get away with it, you know? <laughs> it's like H.H. Holmes building a murder house. Like how many people did he kill before he got caught? Like Yeah, like he had a like fucking that. hotel where he would murder like everyone. <laughs> like gas comes- chambers and like all this weird stuff. He was selling people's bodies to make money. It's like, oh, well, I guess it was somebody. They just went. They just left. It's fine. Here, here The funniest thing about... You know, talking about reality versus fiction is that the idea of the detective was created by fiction. You know, murders in the Rue Morgue. Oh, yeah, Edgar Allan Allen Poe. Poe and um, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Those predated actual real life detectives using using forensics and you know psychology in order to catch criminals and- uh, i think i uh, was it, a comedian uh, john mulaney has a very funny bit where he talks about like um a client crime scene cleanup where like in, in like the the earlier era like you come across like a murder scene and then you just be like oh this is gross someone clean all this shit up <laughs> and now it's like you know like yeah they're like you're wearing like a full fucking space suit because you don't want to <laughs> disturb a single like hair fiber or blood speck yeah i one thing uh I think is interesting about this movie is it does try to be like forensic too, right? It's it's also like half an episode of law and order or CSI in a sense. But despite of that, 
I still find this movie like really, you know, riveting because of, as Shannon was mentioning, the, the set design, even the look of the film, which they achieved by not removing all the silver out of it when they were developing it. So that's why it has that really like deep, yeah. dark tone. Like it, I, I, this movie, I really do st- uh, think stands the test of time, even though it's in a well worn genre, even though it's, you know, when Kevin Spacey shows up, it kind of becomes a little bit like silly and goofy with his, his speeches. Um, but I, I really do think uh, this is a, like one of the greats and I absolutely enjoyed this movie. Yeah. Rewatching it, the um, like the foreshadowing of him looking over at Brad Pitt and talking about how much he admired him, like starting earlier on, like the sense, I don't know if I would have oh, yeah. picked oh, up yeah. on that the first time I saw it, Yeah, but just like little, and it's not like too over that. He's not like, I envy you. It's not super, super explicit, but it's kind of when, when you know, I think the second time and especially now the third or fourth time that I've watched it, it's like, there's a lot of, like a lot of work went into that script on top of it being like interesting and weird and striking and stuff. Yeah, like I don't know about you know John Doe's philosophy scenes, but his like fucking with the cops is actually is perfect. Yeah, that's is great. That, yeah, that's perfect. I mean, I think it makes it, it makes a very interesting um, juxtaposition with David Fincher's Zodiac, which is like you know his other big movie about um, a real serial killer. But like it, it's so fascinating because Zodiac is like it's just a completely different movie. Like it's a procedural mm-hmm. where like the murders and the murderer him themselves is almost totally incidental to what the movie is really about. Yeah, I have to go back and rewatch Zodiac. I didn't people have been telling me I, it left me cold the first time I watched it. I think you should definitely you should definitely watch it again. Uh, I yeah. I mean I think Zodiac is his real masterpiece. I mean like oh. they're, they're both they're both great, but like like Zodiac is, is has some of the most frightening scenes like in in any movie I think I've ever seen. Like a couple of the murders early on in that movie are Oh yeah, I remember the first one is is really really good, really scary. But like, I mean, what what you know, what the movie's really about is like is is getting obsessed with with something of which there is really no chance that you're like like once you really start investigating anything, it could be like a a, a, the fact that their murders are kind of incidental. But like, when you really really get obsessed with something and you're really trying to like to find the truth about something you realize that it's basically impossible. It's like a Schro- it's like a Schrodinger's cat thing. It's like observing it changes it and it changes you while you're doing it. And I, that, 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 that's what I really like about Zodiac. And it becomes sort of, it's more of like a portrait of like the society it's taking place in and how it changes over the course of this investigation. I like Zodiac too, but I think I would also need to rewatch it. I think I kind of understood that it was like really dense and really well done mechanically. But I also didn't like it as much as Seven, but Seven is such like a visceral, easy to like movie that I also need to go back and rewatch it. That's it. Yeah, because like, I mean, like Zodiac is like, I think a lot of people went into it expecting it was going to be like Seven because it was David Fisher yeah, doing a serial killer story. And it's very, it's very, very different. Mm-hmm. Like he's, he's doing, he's really doing like the, it's, he's doing the, like the opposite thing of, of what Seven is about. Yeah. And speaking of kind of the opposite of Seven, that brings our, <laughs> to our next movie. The little things. Shan- I already talked a little bit to Shannon about this, and uh, you didn't uh, like this movie that much. Is that right, Shannon? I did not like this movie. No. Yeah, I really kind of enjoyed it. I ended up really, really liking it because I just like, like I like Denzel, I like Jared, and I, I'm gr- I'm starting to like Romney, and I just like them growling things at each other for a couple <laughs> hours. Like it's the little things, Jimmy. <laughs> little things that get you caught like i that's that's kind of all i need from this type of movie is just like some actors i like saying some pithy uh lines which seven has a lot of uh and i think the little thing little things has a few of them too and but i did find it very interesting how this is just a complete subversion of the mind hunter genre yeah uh, again spoilers for this one but the cops don't solve shit yeah. In fact, they just make do more murders. Basically, <laughs> they're they are local yokel detectives trying to solve this serial killing case. They don't move one single inch on the case the entire movie, and instead they just end up murdering an innocent true crime fan. Like that. Like this. That's what I kind of find interesting. This movie is about the cops murdering a true crime obsessive 
for getting too close to the case. Like, so that's kind of one interesting theme I saw, but I, I really just enjoyed this one as a serial killer movie that if you absolutely hate cops, you can still uh, enjoy everything about this one. I mean, the interesting thing about um, the little things, and this is like something that a lot of people remarked about, mark, remarked on when it came out is that like, this is, it, it, it was such an odd feeling like watching it because it was, you know, it's it, it's, a, it's a new movie. It's like it's a movie that like, you know, normally I'd want to see in the theater, but like, oh, it's on HBO Max. It's on your TV immediately. So I'm like, OK, I'll watch a movie. But it, it left me feeling very depressed because I, I just it, it, there was nothing in it that was like bad, but it just didn't really feel like anything to me. Like it didn't really. And, and like the interesting thing is like it's a movie that was written 30 years ago that's set 30 years ago and it was like written at the exact same time or around of, of that era mm. of when like, when like of like of seven and those kinds of movies and for it to be like, you know, made and finally released in 2021, it just had this odd feeling of being like, you know, yeah, of a different time or, or like if that movie had come out when it was ri- originally written, I think a lot of people really would have had their minds blown by it. But by now it's a victim of like how many of these, of these tropes have been, like not just the tropes themselves, but the subversion of them have been so shop worn that like like what this movie's doing like doesn't seem as impressive to us now. Yeah, like if this had come out before Mystic River and Copland, uh, yeah, which I think yeah, are two very uh, similar style of movies. Like this would have won Oscars. You know, this is like, and they were trying to do that. They might still win. I don't know, but uh, I mean, I, I was just like. I was kind of depressed by this movie because I was just like, you know, I, we're all just like, I, I miss going to the movies so bad. Like, I, I miss, I miss new movies so bad. And like, like this was like, okay, good, it's right here, and it just it left me feeling. I mean, I, I got so depressed watching this movie that I had to watch Devil in a Blue Dress right after it to like <laughs> oh, just sort of like release serotonin back into my brain. I was like, I was like, it depressed me because I'm like, I, you know, not even Denzel could really like pull this movie through <laughs> for me. And like Denzel is like one of the most reliable leading men ever. Like yeah. it's just he he always delivers, and you know, and he delivers in this movie too. Like it's not like it's it's bad. I mean, the only one. I mean, Rami Malek was the only person in that movie I thought was like severely miscast. Like, I just, I, I just, I look at him and I do not see like a cop. I do not see a cop in like early '90s Los Angeles. Yeah, I feel like he was cast for one scene and one scene only, and that's when he uh, uh, domes Jared Leto, <laughs> and then he like breaks down like a little child and like squats. He was cast for that scene because he looked like a little boy who had yeah. just done something wrong and is like afraid to tell mommy. And da- Daddy, I think he nails that scene, but you're right. He doesn't come across as, like, the brooding detective. He doesn't come across as, like, a Brad Pitt, which is, no. like, he's basically playing the same character. He's just, like, he's kind of, his performance is baffling. Like, what was he doing with his face for a lot of it? I don't Because I, oh, I don't yeah. think I've seen him in anything. I haven't watched any of the stuff that he's in, I don't think. This is my first introduction to Rami Malek, and I was just like, well, it doesn't seem like he's a bad actor. It's just, like, maybe the direction or whatever and then jared leto is like super over the top as this like uh, this guy who's killed for being annoying basically like <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah pretty much he killed his wife and has his wife and <laughs> her head in a box and this guy was just annoying so he, yeah like you said he domes him at the end of little things it's like it, it seems exactly like that scene in seven where he's yeah. like driving him deep into the desert to, to find something it's like oh god but what you're is exactly it? right shannon it's like like what what he finds is just yeah like a really annoying asshole who's <laughs> wasting your time like leslie was saying that is very anti-cop he gets so upset it's like brad pitt gets upset because the guy shot at him and killed his wife and then Rami malik gets upset because he's annoying and just kills him yeah because he like owns him yeah he does you're not giving any reason for why rami is even so fucked up in this so you just have to assume that all cops are fucking psychos because and i think that's fair because all the cops help the denzel character cover up the time where he <laughs> yeah. shot a victim of a serial killer yeah. in the fucking chest. Yeah, Denzel kills more people than the fucking whatever theoretical murderer, <laughs> at least on screen. Uh like yeah, like I mean like that's the thing about li- little things is that it is like very self-consciously like undermining all of your expectations about this, but like in a way that I found kind of unsatisfying because it was it was a movie about a serial killer where there is no serial killer. Yeah. There's no on-screen murders and there's really not any even – there's not even any scene of like really being frightened. There's like – there's no thrills in it either. 
it, it is all this kind of, uh, you know, it's a, it's a sustained anti-climax, really, where, like, the climax of the movie is just Denzel making a sacrifice to, like, lie to this poor bastard to just, like, save his own life from, like, to save Rami from becoming him. If this movie just had come out a couple decades earlier, this would have been promoted more, like, Copland was not as, like, a grimy crime thriller, but, like, some kind of prestige piece, like, the elevation of the genre, so you wouldn't go in expecting to see grizzly murders, because this is a movie for, like, adults, you know, more more or less, but but this, you know, they kind of they they basically it kind of it doesn't really look it obviously doesn't look as good as seven. Um, looks very modern, very clean. Has a nice has a real sheen to it that I think ends up hurting and detracting from the realness of it. Like you're supposed to kind of it's supposed to feel gritty and real and like everybody you're supposed to realize that everyone is like a fucked up liar in it. But it looks like. He just looks like Denzel a lot of the time, you know. <laughs> you know, he does, he's he's not like his character in Man on Fire. I didn't expect the turns uh, that this film took, or how uh, dark his character ended up being. And I feel like it actually would be better if this film kind of foreshadowed that a little bit more, or, or played that up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Or it was like my my one thrill watching this movie is the, the one scene where Denzel grabs Jared Leto's dick in interrogation. <laughs> <laughs> yes that that was pretty decent what were they thinking trying to give jared leto like a pot belly like that was really weird if, it looks jared, really leto, weird. if jared leto he just seems like one of those guys if he put on 100 pounds he still wouldn't have like a belly belly like that just seems like a very strange choice uh to me for this guy and didn't really add anything to it i, I do want to say i did like the turn that he ended up being just like kind of a innocent annoying asshole because it, it seems so obvious that he was the killer in the first 30 <laughs> minutes you're like w- like there's no way like this movie can be two hours long when they already like find the guy like that at the first place they go to so i did appreciate the journey but I, I, this isn't my fa- favorite uh jared performance i feel like it should have been a little bit a little bit more jokery more a little he could have jokered it up just a tad uh, he was he was just more like a, a weird, annoying, like nerdy guy. Like well, similar guy. to uh, the the Kevin Spacey uh, meta context of him being a serial killer, with uh, casting Jared Leto in this role as a, <laughs> mm-hmm. an, uh, you know an, uh, as a real individual, someone who uh, you know allegedly uh, could easily be believed by me to be a serial killer or you know literally a cult leader i mean cult christ leader, only, yes yeah christ only knows what he's actually gets up to as he, is, Jared he Leto, probably calls himself a cult leader i do have to say that <laughs> one thing that really uh bothered me watching this movie was the editing like the pacing um i felt like some of the dialogue scenes were cut really fast or like there was at least a couple times where it like broke the 180 degree rule or it felt like they should have cut one scene but instead they went through the whole movie and kind of trimmed it down piece by piece and then i started thinking about it too much as i was watching it and it was just like driving me crazy i just thought it was like very like seven especially rewatching seven this morning is so like beautifully shot and beautifully edited like if you watch them back to back and looked at that aspect of it like it's one of the, well, it's been, well, I'm an editor, so it might be just something that I kind of fixate on, but it's something that like bothered me watching it. The pacing's really unnatural. Oh, that's funny. I, I that's funny because I didn't pick up on that, but I did notice one. I, I guess you, maybe you can call this editing thing that I did like is that they did the GTA night to day transition in one of the scenes where they just kind of like it looked just like a video game does mm-hmm. the night day so, like, transition. Time lapse one. Yeah, I did yeah. like that. It was some overhead shot of like the cars on the freeway that I liked, like bumper to bumper traffic or whatever. I was like, that's a cool shot. I remember liking that. At the end when he's digging for the corpses and you think maybe he's done like three or four and then it zooms out and he's done like 12 of them. <laughs> and so you understand why he don't, why he killed Jerry. Cause like, oh, he's been out here for like two hours digging holes uh, that were completely empty and being fucked with the whole time. Okay. I kind of get it now. It's not it's not a bad movie, but it left me feeling depressed because I, I just maybe it was because of exactly like how I felt when I was watching it. And because of this weird place we're in now where I was just sort of more captivated by my fear of like movies and like the cinema as a medium, maybe dead or like maybe dying. And like that was 
just kind of the feeling I got from this movie because it was sort of it, maybe it was because I was watching it on my TV and it was like this is what we have now is like you know first release movies that you watch on your TV immediately, yeah. which you know I mean to, honestly does dilute a lot of their power a lot the sort of exclusivity of it the investment of yourself and your time to actually go to a dedicated location to watch them. But it left me feeling a little depressed because, like I said, like I don't think there's any aspect of this movie that is that is bad or like like you know like stupid or egregiously like you know absurd or annoying or insulting or anything. Like all the performances are good, like it looks good, but it just it left me feeling empty. And I understand like that that's kind of like the point it's going for with it. It's it's subversion of your expectations in this kind of sustained anticlimax, but just. As as a whole, it left me like uh, it, it left me with a feeling that like not even Denzel can save movies, and like that that made me feel really bad at the end of it. I didn't like it. I, I think it's interesting to watch, being a really big fan of the first season of True Detective and a really oh, big yeah. fan of Seven and stuff, and kind of something that is to me attempting to be subversive of those movies. But like Will was talking about, there's no there's nothing really really visceral to it. Or I didn't have that much of an emotional attachment to it. Like if it had, I think a lot. Of, if the direction had been different or the editing had been different, um, I would have liked it a lot more, probably even with the same script. Uh, but yeah, overall, I wasn't a big fan. I I didn't have as much of a like a depressing reaction to it. But I understand why Will feels that way. I think if I watched more movies like this and started to sense a pattern, I would have like a growing feeling of dread. But for now, I'm okay. <laughs> I did ultimately enjoy this a lot just because I feel like it was it was such a poignant subversion of, of the genre. But I can understand, Will, like if this is what you're pinning your hopes on for the future of cinema, uh, yikes, I would uh, I might need to sell my AMC stock. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it was just yeah, it was just this idea that like, you know, here's a movie that was written 30 years ago that takes place 30 years ago that's out now. And it's just this. This sense of like you're watching like the ghost of a movie, yeah. Like, that this movie should have like it's just of a different time, and then it's just sort of like it's out now because it's just it's this sense I get a lot now from movies where it's just like everything is technically good or like it has everything that you would that you expect from like a good movie for like adults that like you know it's like worthy enough to be taken seriously, but it just it has this I don't know kind of. Yeah, like like Shannon said, there like it, it, there's nothing visceral there, and I think there's this sense now in movies and all entertainment where they they, especially during COVID, where like you know everyone is trapped inside, we have this like sense that like we don't know what the future is, or just this perpetual now that we're all stuck in. That movies and entertainment in general just they they know as they're being made that like all they need to do is just sort of be there just to just fill, fill that time for you. And it's just like, but, but, but there's nothing behind it. And that was the feeling I got watching the little things. Either of y'all have any recommendations or any favorites in the mind hunter world that maybe people might not know about, might want to check out. Yeah. I, I, I got a really good one. Um, that is like a very, very unheralded, like, I think like little scene movie that like doesn't get enough recognition, um, for how, for how groundbreaking a lot of the filmmaking techniques used in it. And like how much it uh, like, you know, a, a lot of movies that came after it have um, copied it or just like, you know, like taken the ball and run with like what this movie did. And that is um, Richard Fleischer's The Boston Strangler, which was made in uh, like the late 60s, I think. And it is a very, very nasty and modern movie about a real, you know, a, a, a real serial killer case. It's about the Boston Strangler. And it is this like extremely detailed police procedural about the investigation into these killings. And it's um, Henry Fonda and Tony Curtis plays Albert DeSalvo, the actual Boston Strangler. And probably I would say like one of the most, probably like the best performance of, of his career and one that goes a hundred percent against type about the type of characters that Tony Curtis normally plays. He, he plays him with this like severely disassociated like flat affect that is really effective and terrifying but like leslie to your point if you want a movie about how bad cops are at their job 
watch the Boston Strangler because it's about the Boston Police Department of the 1960s investigating a series of sexually motivated murders with all the sensitivity that you might imagine <laughs> from that institution. It's like the way they investigate this crime is by basically uh, harassing gay people, yeah. consulting psychics, and uh, hypnotizing <laughs> witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> and then accidentally arresting the right guy. But um, the, 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 the sense of sort of shared subjectivity between um, you, the viewer, the police investigating these crimes, and then eventually the, the murderer themselves. Like Fleischer uses all of these like split screens and um, like, like skewed perspectives and like this, this melding of like, like I said, a kind of cinematic subjectivity in this movie that is very modern. And uh, really interesting, and I would I would highly recommend watching the Boston Strangler. Um, I don't think there are any Mindhunter movies that I would recommend that are like obscure. I think I've mostly seen the big ones, uh, so I was trying to think of something to recommend. And my favorite serial killer movie is Man Bites Dog, which is this oh black wow and white. yeah, I love that movie. It's an early nineties <laughs> oh, Belgian yeah. movie. It's uh, sort of an early mockumentary where this camera crew is following a serial killer. And he is just completely repulsive. He's like charming, but he's also completely repulsive. And he just like kills people on screen and does like all sorts of like other terrible, terrible, terrible things. And it's just an indictment of media violence and the way that people love violence. And it's almost like a precursor to stuff like Dexter or this kind of deification of the serial killer figure because it is just like disgusting and brutal and very funny. It's, it's like, extremely funny. Like it's it's, great. it's it's a very like you know black the blackest of all black comedies. Uh, Shannon, mm-hmm. the only the scene I remember the most from that movie is I think early in the movie he's uh explaining to the film crew how to dispose of bodies and he makes this like he has this like jaunty little way of talking about it where he explains to them you have to you have to weigh down children's bodies more because their bones are porous. <laughs> yeah, and he has like the little drink with the thing floating in it as like a yeah. metaphor. Yeah. But I would, I mean, that one, that's about as far as I can go as far as a movie being kind of like really, really bleak and nihilistic without it being too far for me. It's like the perfect balance. It's sort of like Snowtown or Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, but like funnier. So Henry's a good that. one. Henry's a good one. Yeah, Henry's great. One movie I'll recommend is uh, Dario Argento's Tenebre, which besides Ooh. having an absolute banger of a fucking soundtrack, is a very stylish, uh, pretty brutal at times uh, example of the Italian giallo uh, uh, genre, which often features serial killers mm-hmm. and investigations. And I would definitely, definitely uh, check that out. Probably his last good movie maybe made in 1982 so watch that and if you like it go before not after uh for movies and a tv show i'll recommend since we're in quarantine and you need something to binge and i think this one is on a lot of services and it may seem strange but i think this is the most realistic portrayal of mind hunting i've actually seen and that's the uh, nbc tv series medium which is actually about a a psychic um, housewife who helps the police hunt killers. And the reason I think it's realistic is because she's not a detective in any sense. She just gets psychic dreams about the killings. Like she is like almost cheating because all she has to do is like have dreams and then tell the detectives like what the Isn't criminals Miguel are Miguel Sandoval the other, like the second lead in that? Yes, yes, yes. Miguel yes. Sandoval. Okay. Yeah. Anything with Miguel Sandoval is thumbs up for me. Yeah, it, and he plays like just he plays the DA who is an absolute, absolute like feckless dipshit, like a droopy dog type character. <laughs> and it's it's a and it's a Patricia Arquette is the lead, and she's like very nice and genial, but like a cop, and so she like talks about like she she'll straight up tell people is like i can't wait till you get to death penalty and shit like this like this like half the show is like her raising her kid her lovely children and her husband and then it's her like trying to putting people in prison and trying to actively get them the death penalty it's an extremely uh conservative show extremely conservative show but one that is actually like enjoyable and good i i was shocked when my uh, partner put this on and i started watching i'm like wait a minute that show was actually kind of decent. Like it actually, it really kind of hooked me in because it, it just like, there's no craft to the police work. She has dreams, finds out who the criminal is and she tells them. And then every time she tells them, all the detectives are like, what the fuck are you talking about? Allison? No way did he do that murder. Every single episode, 
300 episodes not once do they believe her <laughs> at no point and every time she has to tell them she and would buy some credibility to this idea of her paranormal abilities yeah. not even once and so it, it's just a really good portrayal of what the what the cops are actually like and how mind hunting actually works it's just them kind of stumbling over evidence that the criminal leaves behind and, and this is what John Doug- Douglas does say it's like the more you know we, we just find they tell on themselves they're the best witness against themselves serial killers they're not these evil geniuses they don't most a lot of them don't want to get caught and take active measures to avoid the police but as he says like the more active measures you take the more stuff you're doing which means you're going to leave more evidence of your behavior and that uh helps get you caught actually i think the most important insight that uh, FBI Quantico Behavioral Science has uh, the most important insight that they've um, uh, discovered is that probably the, one of the most reliable indicators that someone is a serial killer or inclined to it is uh, how, how like that they wanted to be a cop or pretend to be. Yes. A cop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that And they, that's even in the little things, too, when he that little piece where he's like asking um one of the detectives oh how'd you get this job i bet you like it huh and like yeah like a lot of the serial killers are like that like one of the number one things they say in profile is he probably hangs out in cop bars or you know listens to the radio or he's probably tried to apply for the academy academy but gotten out like what does that say about police work it's like they take the most high functioning of these uh (laughs) these personality types and allow them to kill uh legally with impunity yeah it's like it's like they're thwarted authority figures it's like they they want the respect of like uh, of being in the police or the military but like are even among their lax standards have been considered like um too incompetent or insane uh to get that job but like yeah it's it's this it's this need to pretend to be like a, a police officer yeah, even going back to the little things like the end where they bring in the FBI guy and he's just a square jaw, blue eyed asshole, and you know he's not gonna do anything. Yeah, to yeah. Solve you the know case. these murders are gonna go on unabated <laughs> when the movie ends. So there, there, well, people have been talking about why, even though serial killers are still kind of popular in culture. There's actually is are less serial killers now and people theorize, oh, it's because forensics have gotten better. So if you do, even if you kill a stranger, you might leave DNA. People speculate, oh, it's because crime has gone down so much and that, you know, because of the lead poisoning. What if it's because we've just been hiring so many more cops <laughs> that the average serial killer is now getting the job that it. he wants? And they can kill people legally, you know? Yes. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Did you have anything uh, anything you're working on that you want to talk about? Just the usual. You know, find me on Twitter and on uh, the podcast, Chapo Trap House. All right. Peace. Bye. Bye. Like what you hear? Want to hear more? Check us out at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus or struggle session.substack.com for all our public episodes, commercial free, as well as hundreds of bonus episodes. Thank you to all our listeners for holding us down five years strong.